0: Can you believe it's November already? Halloween is over. Daylight savings time is finished. So that can only mean one thing. Christmas is coming fast. So we have to start thinking about the amount of production gear it can take to pull off our Christmas services. If you're needing some gear, our friends at Church Gear have a 10% savings for you on their site. Use the code MXUChristmas to get 10% off any and all gear on their website at churchgear.com. They test all their gear and offer a six-month warranty to churches on all of their certified church-owned gear. Their entire business model is designed to serve your church's needs, so make sure to check them out as you gear up for Christmas. Okay, let's get to the show.
1: You are now entering the MXU podcast. No credentials required.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 130 of the MXU Podcast. I'm Jeff Sandstrom, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Lee Fields. How you doing, buddy? My call time today is one thirty. That's pretty great. Yeah. Okay, so we need to fill everybody in on what you mean by that, because we're actually in the same room for the first time in a while doing one of these podcasts. We're at HQ. In Knox Vegas. In Knox Vegas. MXU HQ, because you're here this week with... The crew from Hillsong United yeah. and the boys from the Tomlin crew yeah. because they're back out for a short run of about a dozen shows yeah. this fall. And the first show is in your hometown where you grew up and saw your first concert.
2: Yes, that's it is. pretty awesome. It is awesome. And that Creed and Seven Dust concert was
0: very impactful. (laughs) So when we talked about that yesterday, you said you walked away from that show a huge Seven Dust fan. You thought Creed was stupid. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I went, I don't know what year it was. I feel like I was in seventh grade, maybe seventh or eighth. And thinking, oh, I'm going to go see Scott Stapp and Creed. And they were like the biggest band on the planet for a year. Yeah, (laughs) You know, that one record. And then left going My life has been changed by metal and seven dust, but they're they're not really metal. but Yeah, hard rock, though. A lot harder rock than Creed. A lot harder, and they had trampolines on stage. (laughs) Which makes any show better, I think. But that was the first concert where we were sitting in the lower bowl and we were on the side. I I know exactly where we were sitting. So like three-quarters back, probably even with front of house and probably halfway up in the lower bowl. And I've never – that was the first time where you feel like –
0: this is loud, and my whole body is shaking. Yeah. You, there's something about the first time you feel that kind of impact yes. in a live, big PA. It's yeah. like it's, it's life-changing. It is. And like, it was 7 Dust. They were the opening band. Yeah. So your teeth rattle, your chest hurts, yes. but you love
2: it. Yeah. Yeah. And I had not yet decided how can I affect other
0: 7th graders for the rest of my life, but <laughs> it probably had something to do with it. That's amazing. Okay, so during sound check today, yeah. you need to go to that seat and check your mix in the PA in that seat where you were sitting because wow. there's probably going to be a 7th grader at the show tonight that could be blown away by what you're about to do. During Oceans, just kick drum as loud as just, I can. Just, I mean, just <laughs> more 12K than there is on the console.
2: you seen that, uh, that video, the drummer's at the wrong gig, and they're playing Oceans, but he's playing like metal fills. <laughs> you remember that? Yes. So it's like front of house guy at the wrong gig. It's Oceans at 115 DBA.
0: That's amazing. I don't think it would go over well. Probably not. But who knows? Maybe tour management won't be at front of house. They may, they'll, they'll be in the back settling, so you could do whatever you want. I've already been told that artist management is at front of
2: house tonight. Ooh. It's the first show of the tour. So Okay, well, you better be on here. your best
0: behavior. I'm going to be there, so yeah. if I reach over and start twisting knobs, yeah. you can just blame me. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. So the other reason that I'm here is because I'm doing some – last-minute programming for our workshops next week. So this episode will actually come out on Monday, which is the first day of our first-ever MXU workshop here at HQ. Yep. And I couldn't be more excited. We've got about 40 people a day who are coming to just sort of do what we used to do in our live events, which is um, talk about mixing. Yep. So we're going to focus on audio for Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday is lighting. Thursday is video. So if you guys are listening and you didn't get a ticket yet, you're still welcome to come Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. It'll be super last minute, but There's we do a have handful, a little bit of space. Maybe yeah. a handful of tickets left for those yeah. days, but you can still come. But we're going we're gonna to figure out this next week how to do workshops here in person because I think it's going to be a really effective way for people to continue to learn and get discipline-specific information from some of our Expert friends who have right. a lot to share and who are great teachers. Rusty and Jeremy are doing video. Uh, Daniel Cannell and Tony Franson are doing lighting. And anybody who's at those events is going to walk away with so much mind blowing insight yep. that I can't wait to see the impact.
2: Um, we also were just in Africa. That whole experience, like when people have been asking me, like, how is Africa? And I'm like, it's, it was the strangest trip of my life. Really? Yes. That's a bold statement. Strangest. Okay. Because that country is very strange. Yeah. Okay. South Africa. So you're in Africa.
0: So first of all, let's talk about the flight though before anything because it's you also and I. So strange. Yeah. You and I both had travel days that were over 30 hours. Yours was about 33 or four. Mine yeah. was about 31 or two. Yeah. Because um, we flew to Atlanta and then. The Atlanta to Johannesburg leg is Delta's longest single leg, sixteen hour flight. That's in the air sixteen hours. In the hour. air sixteen hours. You board an hour before that. Yeah. And then we flew when we landed in Johannesburg, we had a two hour layover before we flew to Cape Town. Right. Which so, was two hours. Yeah. It was it was a really, really long travel day. Yeah. But then we had a great weekend in Cape Town before the workshops mm-hmm. and got to play golf in Africa, which was very cool. Yep went to a winery which was very cool. Yep. Got to see Table Mountain and some of the scenery of Cape Town which is amazing. Yep. Then went back to Johannesburg. Well, we almost got robbed a few times. Well, there was that one time, yeah.
2: <laughs> so that was some of the weird part. Yeah. Like when I say strange, it's one of the most beautiful cities on earth, also one of the most crime infested. Yeah. At the same time. So it's like you could vacation here
0: and lose a limb. Well, and part of it is that their economy is so volatile right now. Right, the rand, which is their currency, is it's been up and down, and mostly down against the dollar. So it was great for us if you have dollars to spend. Yeah. But if you're a person relying on the economy for your living, it's yeah, it's pretty challenging. You know, ever since COVID, really, they've they've been, you know, really. Struggling so, we went to we, church too. We went to church. We went to um, Hillsong's Cape Town campus on that Sunday, and it was great. It we was got awesome. to hang out with Guillaume and see what they're doing. It was awesome. And then when we got back to Johannesburg, I actually visited two different churches: uh, Rivers Church, which is like a super modern, you know, very Western, you know. It looks like a mega church in Dallas. It like does. you see a picture yeah, of it. Yeah, it does. It, it's very similar, like really cool lobby, side screens, LED, big PA, the whole thing that everybody would expect from a you know, modern American church. And it's probably twenty thousand people or something. Through th- yeah, getting there through the weekend kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um so probably just like tw- what you twenty five hundred seat room. Yeah. yeah. And then um after that, I went to a church in Soweto, which is A lot more like Africa than what we saw in Cape Town or. And how far was that drive? 20 minutes? 30, yeah, 30 at the most. Yeah. And it was like right at the edge of the townships where all the apartheid history happened and where, you know, we passed the school where Hugh Masekela studied music. We passed, you know, all this history of Nelson Mandela and all the, the history of apartheid. And this church, it was. An offshoot of uh, RHEMA here in the U.S., but it looked like you were walking onto the campus of like ORU or Bob Jones, where it's that light tan brick everywhere, yeah. and yeah. the worship center was this 4,500 seat, flat floor, semi open sides. It was a very like mm-hmm. you know, it's Africa, so it's it's yeah. hot and it's. You know, open air, somewhat. No air conditioning. No air conditioning, and pretty big PA, but all concrete and flat floor and plastic chairs. So it was. It's like the plastic chairs you see in Africa, the one they do church, just the the ones that I would break if I sat in them. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, but um, <clears throat> but the and that they have one one staff guy who was actually at our workshops. Great guy, super great heart. But working really hard to bring, you know, 4,500 people in every service. And it yeah. was on the edge of what you think of when you see the townships, which is basically shanty towns. Yeah. And, you know, as far as the eye can see, you know, and it, it, it's just so compelling as a privileged American white man who really has no context for that. In my everyday life, just to see how dedicated people were to their church how yeah. how much they were really trying to continue to get better and learn more and you know they were all in for the workshop days that we had and it was just really exciting to me to know that the big C church is alive and well all over the world, but to see it in that context you're right it was it was jarring a little bit. Yeah. You know, anytime anytime you've been on a mission trip, it's like, you know, you're you're getting way more than you're giving. And not that we were there for a mission trip, but no. I, it was a similar kind of feeling where when I left, I feel like I I got a lot more than I spent in terms of my energy. You know, we were tired, we were yep. jet lagged, we were pouring out our brain power for our workshops, but at the same time I was more energized by it than I probably am at some of the things we've done here in the U.S. For
2: sure, I think it's a different feeling doing an event here when you know it's not all megachurches that come to our events here, but it's right. a lot of larger churches. Yeah, and when you meet someone in South Africa that says, "Hi, I'm a volunteer at my church. This is my friend." we live in kenya and we took a 5 hour taxi to the airport to fly here yeah it's a little different it puts i felt more pressure honestly to make sure that their churches were better that weekend than they were the last like totally i didn't want to i've i've been at events before where it's like how much do I have to talk today? I'm really tired. (laughs) Right. You know, I've done that. Yeah. This one was like, we have to make sure that everyone understands how powerful a high-pass filter is. Right. Because that is gonna help
0: big churches or small. You know, And what I loved about that was that, I mean, and we also talked about a lot of complicated concepts, too. Yeah. But even when, like, we were talking about a high-pass filter, the number of aha moments and the light bulbs that you could see going off and i think the i think you and i did a really effective job in illustrating some of these concepts so much so that people were taking notes about a high pass filter right it was like oh no that i learned a lot right like that is really compelling yeah like to find the sweet spot in a high pass filter it's like no that's too high nope that's too low oh wait right there and then start EQing it was like you just, it's so easy to forget things like that. Yeah. But it was it was great. It was. And we did another thing. In the
2: morning, you know, Jay was with us. We, I've talked about Jay, but he's not here. So um, we asked everybody to raise their hands, like, how many of your churches are between 100 and 500 people? And a few hands went up. We had about 300 people over two days. Yeah. A few hands went up. You're like, okay, how many of you between 500 and 1,000? And a few more went up. How many of your churches between a thousand and two thousand, and it was still less than half? Yeah. Like how many of you are over two thousand, and then most of the hands went up. Yeah. Okay. We did that because in America, North America, or the the Western Evangelical Church, Europe, Australia, um, the amount of people in your church is representative of usually. Budget, gear, skill level, like there's a lot of other things that come with that. Right. Like leading and lagging indicators. Well, there, that's not true. No. Because you can have a church of 20,000, and they're on an eight-channel Mackie console. People are showing up. Right. Yeah. So what we should have asked, and w- which we did, was, okay, how many channels do
0: your consoles have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was actually surprised that there weren't more analog consoles represented. No, there was like one a day. Yeah. And there were a lot of people with large format, really good gear, but only one staff person. Right. You know, a couple of the churches had like a what you would consider a real production staff, like we would have here. But there were a lot of people who were just volunteer based. Yep. And that was really exciting to see. It was. It's the. I don't.
2: I hope this doesn't sound arrogant. It's not meant to be, but. The skill level of the volunteers to the types of equipment that people are using there is very different than here, Yeah, where, hey, I did this as a tech director, production guy at a big church, Uh, you can't mix here unless you can
0: mix here. Right. Well,
2: what if you don't have a choice? (laughs) Right. How quickly
0: can you get this guy up to speed with basics, because... You need a break. Right. Or there's a student building, or there's a midweek service, or there's a women's Bible study, or there's a outdoor event. Like Mm -hmm. these guys who are who are doing this as staff are running ragged because their ministries are doing so much, which is great. Right. But it's like all the more reason to have something like, you know, what we did there and other resources to be able to just get people up to speed because there's just so much to do. There is. And You know, the
2: economy was the other thing that struck me was you know, a church of twenty thousand people in the US, they're gonna probably spend on production, on expendables and rentals, and events and holidays over a year. Some of them might spend a million dollars, but it's like a quarter million dollars and up is what the budget of a twenty thousand person church is here. Right. There's only like a hundred of those in the country. But there's a lot of 20,000-person churches there, and I started asking, and the average budget there for a church that size is about $20,000.
0: Yeah. A dollar a person. Yeah. That's crazy. It is crazy. So we were hosted by the guys from Stage Audio Works, Nathan Eilenfeld and his team, yep. and they were awesome. But I just want to give another shout-out to them, because they're doing great work. They're all over Africa and the Middle East, and you know they're providing... Much needed, not just resources and gear, but really good ideas about stewardship. We talked a yeah. lot to Nathan about just how they approach their process. And, you know, for these churches, it's like, especially because gear is priced in dollars, you know, with their currency and with the economy and right. all these things, part of the reason that they do a lot of D and B and Yamaha is because they'll last a long time. Right. So they talk a lot about let's buy something once. It'll last you ten years, because we don't want you to have to go through this process more often than you need to. Right. And they're also there to support. They're there to maintain. Yeah. They're there to, you know, continue to kind of provide upgrade paths or whatever it is. So yeah. they do such a good job, and I I think a lot of U.S. integrators could learn from their approach on some things. They've they've yeah. done a great
2: job. And to s- <sighs> Nathan and the team, the other owners, and we met the founding owner, they really care about serving people because yeah. the whole model of the business they built around doing that, and they keep adding uh, services and other products to do so. So imagine this. Like if you're a church, again, in Western world, and you want choir risers, well you can probably go to com and order some from two <laughs> states away. Right. Or Wenger, or whoever. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Drape. Um you need you know, guitars, picks, cables, truss, LED walls, like all that stuff. There's there are hundreds and hundreds of places you can get that from. Right. Truss. Yeah. Well, stage audio works is really more like Full production needs com or dot what is it? dot sa <laughs> dot S-A? z yeah. or something. <laughs> um, so they've started manufacturing stuff at a low cost. So they make their own truss, they make their own risers. He's OEM to LED, um, from Asia, but they're selling to churches that's way cheaper than, yeah, stuff that we recommend to people so that they can service everything. Like they have guitars, they sell right. picks, they do everything, and they do. $80,000 Sennheiser headphones, which we heard. <laughs> we talked about that yeah. last time, yeah. Um, but
0: but it is a, a more vertically integrated yeah. model where they're able to, you know, their shop is massive yep. because there's a guy in the back welding truss. Yeah. And it's it's they, just a different model.
2: They service all the Blackmagic camera video repairs for the continent.
0: Yeah. To the component level.
2: Yeah. They're like capacitors and... Stuff that I don't know what it does. There's a whole room of that, of just like... Parts. This is yeah. where we fix all the black magic here. Yeah. Which I gave Rusty crap for. Not Rusty, <laughs> sorry. Which I gave Jeremy crap for. There's not a Ross video switcher anywhere in Africa. It's all black magic because of the economy. Yeah. Like, black magic is more like... Or Ross. We're looking at one right now. But churches there can't, can't do that. Yeah. But then we met our new Swedish friends... Amazing. That are missionaries. Yeah. That move to I think their home base is Kenya. Yep. And and I'm following them on Instagram, but I don't remember the name of it. But they do festivals, evangelical festivals, in all throughout Africa and places that are very, very hard to get to. Yep. And hundreds of thousands of
0: people show up. It's to hear their stories, it was crazy. Like they'll just set up in the middle of nowhere, literally, this massive rig, and people walk from forever yep. to just show up and be a part of what they're doing. And they have a DMB GSLPA. Yeah, they do.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's a good example of there are times that you do need to invest in the right tools to communicate what you want to do. Yeah. Because with 150,000 people, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. You can't do that with QSC Wide Lines. Right. You know what I mean? Well, you could, but well,
0: no one sh- only the first 10 rows would hear it, and no, no one should do that. No yeah. one should do anything with QSC Wide Lines. Sue me. <clears throat> Speaking of massive outdoor events, we need to give a quick um, just, I don't know, shout-out, remembrance, whatever, to our friend Bill Thrasher, who passed away, yep. who was part of the Billy Graham Association for years. And when you said large outdoor events, <clears throat> Excuse me, I couldn't help thinking of Dr. Graham and all of the just production needs and how that changed for a couple of generations. Yeah. And Bill being a part of that and in the middle of some of that from the audio perspective. It was just it was sad to hear that news this week, but yeah. what a legacy and you know we we're all whether we know it or not, we've all been impacted by him and by the innovation and the Processes and the, you know, even how to do a big event, you know, right. in in Christian production world, he had a lot to do with a lot of that. So yeah. um, we're just praying for his family and hope for just God's peace for them. But um, what a legend! For sure, I met Bill one time, and this
2: was well before MXG was even a thought. I got invited to speak on an audio panel. Okay. At it may have been AES or something, and it was my first time at that event. And the panel was um, Bull, Bill Thrasher, and a couple other people like that, and then me—way out of your league. Oh my gosh! And I even like the moderator asked me something, and I think I even said. I have no business
0: answering this. <laughs> Bill. You know what I mean? I was like, what am I even doing here? That's funny. It was crazy. yeah, but he was he was super generous with everything he knew. like and I, I think part of what we try to do is to be as open-handed as we can, because I've said it before. It's like everything I know, everything I do is rented. I learned it from somebody else. yeah, and so you know, I think guys like him. Set the table for that kind of attitude, and I think you know he was, he was that kind of generous um, genius that would be willing to tell you exactly what he was doing and how stuff worked, and yeah. share with you. You know, Andrew used to talk about being at festivals where he was like, "I'll let the system engineer set up the gates because I don't really know how they work." Right. It was that kind of thing. Starting out working with somebody like Bill, it was like um, he knows everything and I know nothing. Right. I need to stick to this guy and learn however much I can. Right, for sure. So I think we need more of that in our world these days, you know, especially in the age of just sticking a jump drive and load a file. It's like Gross. we've talked about that a lot. Yeah. That we, we need people who are willing to learn just the ins and outs and how stuff works and the basics. And so we need more guys like him in the world. For sure. Anyway. Godspeed, Bill. All right, let's get to our guest today. We're honored to be joined by Stephen Samuels. Your former boss. My former boss, that's (laughs) right, when he was uh, Chris Tomlin's tour manager. Um, Yeah, so Stephen is now uh, with IPS, so he's gonna talk to us about just a lot of that history and a lot about what they
1: do, and we're gonna tell some stories and have some fun. I have so many questions for you. Oh gosh, here we go. Uh, couple quick hits off the top first of all this building is amazing so thank you for allowing me to come see it and i think what you guys are doing with this space here in knoxville is pretty incredible so
2: well thanks for that out you, on the
1: back now the can. rest will be ridicule rest of the podcast will be ridicule uh, <laughs> okay person Perfect. on a personal level um
2: you guys helped us out with this building so thank you also. well uh
1: happy to play a small part in it um we may or may not have broken a hazer. It's neither here nor there. Hazers <laughs> break. Uh, this is a uh, breaking news. No pun intended. Hazers will fail, um, and we'll get you a new ones. So, um, but now a couple things. As you guys were as you guys were talking, um, I've also been to South Africa. Yeah, and also one of the craziest trips of my life. Okay, see a lot of that. A lot of that trip you can see in a film called Fading West, which was made by the band Switchfoot, which is who I went there with. Okay. In 2012. So, incredible trip. So, I did not surf, just to clarify, but I watched people surf like 15 foot and larger waves in like freezing cold water and get their boards snapped in half because the waves are so violent. No so, way. That's exciting and scary. We played multiple shows in arenas across, I think we did two or three large shows in the larger cities there. Yeah. Um, well, some for of people
0: who don't know, part of the reason why the surfing is so awesome is because right there at the Cape, yeah, right outside of Cape Town, is where the Atlantic Ocean and the Indian Ocean both come together. So it's like one of the world's greatest spots for surfing, whale watching, shark diving. Like There's great whites, there's huge whales, there's huge waves, and it's, it's an amazing
1: place. Yeah, this is a good time to transition this podcast topic to South Africa's nature and environments because it's incredible. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, shout out to the Switchfoot guys. Incredible trip that I was lucky to be a again just a little fly on the wall. Um, Did you get tuning some guitars. Uh No, but we almost got attacked by baboons. So that's a big problem. <laughs> you don't leave your car unlocked. You don't leave your windows open. Your doors of your house, like they'll just come in your house. I've seen
2: those videos on TikTok. And they you have just have to. Thumbs.
1: Yeah, you just let them go. You, if they, you're told like, hey, if you guys at the house you're staying at, we were staying with some hosts, and they said, hey, like. If we're out and we come back and there's baboons in the house, like you just got to let them do their thing and they'll leave. Yeah. They're looking for food or whatever. Right. Um, But they will attack you. They got the teeth. They Oh, yeah. "Yeah, You know, it's bad. So we almost, we we narrowly avoided some of those. Um, But yeah, I watched a, a John had like a 10 foot, like not a longboard, but they call it a gun in the surfing world. It's like a, you do the things you need on a big wave with this skinnier longboard. It's 10 feet long. It was snapped in half. Wow. That footage is in the movie. It's incredible. Wow. Um, but we we did some arena shows, so that like the dichotomy you guys were talking about, we saw up close. We did some arena shows. Yeah, big rock, flashy lights, right? Like normal switchfoot thing. Mm-hmm. And then we also visited, you know, an orphanage where John wrote the song a few years prior to that, "Shadow proves the Sunshine" with these kids, and spent hours with these orphans and you know two hours outside of johannesburg like it's in right you just go from a to z so quickly there yes um but incredible trip so that i had some content to come up with from your south africa discussion yeah that's love it um okay so
2: rewind us how did you become Switchfoot's tour manager well how did you get to where you are now and then i want i have a bunch of questions about your time managing jeff sandstrom uh
1: yeah and this podcast is what three hours three and a half Uh so we'll, (laughs) we'll get to that um, no, so I went to college at Baylor University in the thriving metropolis of Waco, Texas. Sick em. That's right. Um, at the time I went there, it was not covered in shiplap or mag- <laughs> Magnolia pastries, <laughs> but God funny. bless them. They're great people. Um, and so I was dating churches as I was a, a freshman at college there and stumbled upon, uh, David Crowder's church called UBC. And I had grown up playing drums uh, in my church youth band in rural Dallas, or not rural Dallas, but a suburb of Dallas. And so it was really fun to kind of what I thought was like, I'm watching a worship concert every week, and, yeah. the, and the preaching was great. And um, kind of just wanted to get involved and ended up being around David and the other band guys. At the time, this was Gen 1 Crowder, as I like to call it. This was the David Crowder asterisk band. So that was, it was very important that all the, the, the yeah. definite article the, at the beginning yes. in the asterisk between Crowder a and the band I mean big yes. deal. Marketing. There was an um, asterisk there? Oh yeah. I didn't yeah, know yeah. that.
0: And yeah. the shorthand was DC asterisk B. That's right.
1: That was on all our cases until yeah. everything. But I just ended up being around, got along great with the guys in the band um, and some of the church staff. There's still some friends I talk to all the time now. And they would come back from the road. At that time, they were doing a lot of um, camps yeah. and some touring. David was involved in Passion early on, of course. And
2: What it year w- was this? This okay. was
1: like 04. Oh, okay. uh, '05. So they would come back. Um, this was like a collision yeah. record. They would come back from the road on like Saturday night, super late, and have to play church Sunday morning. So I just would be around. And at that time, I don't even think I was getting a text. I think I was getting a phone call saying, yeah. hey, I think the bus will be back in about an hour. Come help us set up. Our drums and amps yeah. and stuff so as a drummer naturally leaned that direction first but figured out how a guitar amplifier worked and a speaker cab and a you know the head and then and how to restring some stuff overnight because it had been thrashed the day before at student life in yeah alabama or whatever
0: and this was in the like the heyday of the david crowder band right and, oh yeah like, oh praise him yes and all those all those yep. hits our were, love is loud Our love is loud Man. they were i mean that's
1: and i had played those songs as a drummer at my church like in high school probably really poorly. Yeah. Um but it was so fun to just kind of be around them and I, you know, there were a lot of college, you know, it's a college church in a college town. Yeah. So there's just kids everywhere that want to help and and kind of just be a part of it. So we would we would set up backline and microphones and that led to, okay, the normal sound guy isn't going to be here this Sunday. Is there any way you can kind of just babysit this soundboard? And I was like, "Well, I've never used a digital one before." And it was a Mackie TT-24. And I remember just being able to hit a button and all the faders would move. And I'm yeah. like, this is cool. <laughs> and I, had, I was never a sound guy. But obviously, playing in bands, I kind of knew what it was supposed to sound like. Yeah,
0: yeah. you were a musical
1: person. So yeah, did, I, yeah. I, did the, I did the high school drum line, jazz band, all that stuff, too. So I, I, I guess I had an idea of what music composition was supposed to be. So they, for some crazy reason, entrusted me to start being like the B-team sound guy. If the main guy wasn't there, I would just sit up by the console, and it was in a balcony. By the way, there were no seats in the balcony in that building, but the the tech booth was in a balcony. It was so you were old,
0: literally by yourself.
1: Yeah, and I don't I don't think we had a lighting guy. I believe that we had a lyrics operator, but I don't think we had a lighting guy. There were like eight park hands in the room. They were on the sides only. So that was one big thing I I remembered about that was David was very um, had very clear instruction. Like I don't want a bunch of light in my face. And then there were some lights that would come on when, um, Kyle or Ben or whoever was preaching would, would preach. But during the worship, there was no front light. And I, like that was, I went to very down the middle adult contemporary Baptist church yeah. growing up and it was all front light. Right. Only with front like light. some glowing blue walls behind them. Right. That's right. what you're supposed to At do. At the most. Yeah. And so, yeah, we didn't have a lighting guy cause it was just eight park ends on the sides only. and, I would, I barely would say the word mix, but I would mix on Sundays. Yeah. Um, and that led to, I, I did that for three years, three and a half years, graduated from college and had the opportunity to live in New York city. And I was, my major was film and digital media, which has nothing to do with what I do now really. But um, I got an internship at an audio post-production studio. So I'm using Pro Tools, we're in a studio environment, but it's all audio for video or radio ads, marketing, things of that nature. Our clients were ad agencies, that world, post-production. Gary Vaynerchuk. Exactly. And I lived there for 18 months and loved it. I lost lots of money because living in New York City is very expensive and when you get an introductory job in New York City, you take it and figure everything else out later. Yep. and I got a call from Crowder's tour manager at the time. His name's Rob. And shout out
0: to Rob Albert. Rob Albert's a gem of a human being. He's one of the kindest people yep. you'll ever want to meet. So it, terrible tour manager. <laughs> well, he could he <laughs> could stand up when he needed to. I saw him get fiery
1: to. plenty of times, whether it was at a festival or a, you know a concert where we were trying to get taken advantage of or something. Yeah. He he had a backbone for sure, but very soft spoken until provoked. Uh, sort of like many wild Which animals.
2: is actually the best kind yeah, of tour. Yeah, he's great. Yeah.
1: So he calls and says, hey, so we just started this tour. Um, it was the church music tour. And we had our first couple of shows this weekend, and Loadout took four hours both oh, days. God. Uh, is there any way you would be available to jump on the rest of the tour? I literally just need a breathing human who knows where stuff goes.
2: <laughs> and I said, well,
1: I've got this full-time job. I work 10 to six every day at a studio and have fun in New York city. But let me think about it. He's like, okay, great. Well the flight that I would need you to get on is in about 40 hours. And I said, okay, I'll think about it really quickly. (laughs) So, um, 40 hours later I was on an airplane. No way. My my couple of my friends in New York were like blown away at the opportunity. Like you've got to do this. You got to figure out how to do it. Everyone at the studio was like, somehow tied to being a musician. They either played guitar or they went to school to mix music, but we, we ended up at post-production because it's so such a big industry there. Yeah. Everyone was doing like their own personal records at the studio at night. Yep. So when they heard like, you can go on a tour with a bus and you're going to come back through New York and play this venue and you're gonna play small arenas and like house of blues style venues. They were like, you need to do that. So everyone was very encouraging and I flew to Las Vegas, which was the first show. And, that's the last time I'd worked in audio post-production. So (laughs) that, I mean, like that really propelled me into the industry as it it is now.
2: Did you end up tour managing
1: Crowder? I was again, brought out on that tour as a warm, breathable human that has breath. Right. So I'm just around. And can I help the 17 year old lighting director, uh, raise the truss on the genie lifts that day. And then the next day, can you help this audio guy who's um, been mixing for us for a year? His name's Daniel. Can you help Daniel, uh, run a snake today? Yeah. And then, Hey, Crowder strings need change because he sweats like a residue that coats strings and makes them smell bad. Can you change those? (laughs) Um, that's not a joke by the way, that's serious. Um, and so I just said, sure, I'll do whatever. Um, which, you know, looking back on it, that was 14, 15 years ago. I wish more people had that attitude now. And that's not to say, that's not to to toot my own horn, but I just wanted to be in the building with those guys on that tour. And that was my, that was my path to getting there was just saying, yep, today I'm patching some XLRs and tomorrow I'm going to be, you know, re-soldering a speaker cable. And then the day after that, I might be um you know, helping focus house lights, like that's-
0: But you learn so much that way. It's like, there's no better way to be versatile in this world of production than being under the gun to have to do stuff like that. Absolutely. And have it be different every day. And we
1: had two bus trailers of equipment, merchandise, lights, sound, backline. And by the way, if you've ever seen a David Crowder band or Crowder show, you know that they have far too much backline. Yeah. And so we were we had two trailers that were packed to the roof, to each wall, to the back door. Um, and I finished that tour and I was like, Yeah, I wanna I wanna do this. Um and so I I you know I essentially became their backline tech, yep. slash stage manager. It was a small crew. It was Daniel Ellis, that was the Daniel I mentioned. Yep. So Daniel had been with them for a couple of years prior. Uh Daniel and I just saw each other last night. Amazing. Um so it's another just funny. great human. Yeah, it's just funny to see how I'd, at that time, I'm like I'm not thinking these are lifelong friends and people I'll know forever. But right. Lo and behold, here yeah. we are.
0: Yeah. So Daniel Ellis went from there to Jesus Culture probably, and then since those days is now with We the Kingdom and That's right. doing great. So he I also ran. mixed for the band Copeland.
1: He did. Yeah. That was that was pre Crowder. Yeah. Right? Crowder. And uh, I was a big fan of them as well. They're Daniel's from East Texas. I'm from I guess North Texas. So we've got the same, similar roots anyway. That's cool. Um, but yeah, We the Kingdom's on tour right now. A um, little plug for them. Their tour's going really great. They had a record come out this fall. It's incredible.
2: They're headlining um, Winter Jam.
1: They're headlining Winter Jam 2023. Um, and uh, I'm lucky and privileged to say they're a happy IPS client on there the production side. There so there, you know, it that's awesome. there it is. Awesome, dudes. Well, um, the other
0: thing about those Crowder days that's funny to me, because you know you talked about having so much to manage or how... Different it was every day. Part of that, you know, if you saw the show back then, like I remember seeing it was like 06, 07, 08, like those years. And even more so when David did the current iteration of Crowder. It's like you see that show and it's like the set of Sanford and Son has blown <laughs> up on stage. Like so much crap all over the place. That's right. So to have a crew that can. Not just manage all that, but to lead other people in helping to manage that. Like, I'm sure you learned more about working with stagehands in that Absolutely. season than any other opportunity.
1: Yeah, and you know, we would like like tours still deal with now. Daniels, we the Kingdom tour deals with this now. Like, one day you may have a union stagehand crew that does know what an XLR and a quarter inch cable is, yeah, and they can probably rig the whole the whole venue if they had to. Like, those stagehands can sometimes be really great. And the next day, I've got like some high school kids from the private school that's attached to the yep. church that we're playing right. in flip flops and in their uniform. Like, uh, I've got to go to class in forty five minutes. So, yep. what can I help you with now? Do I still get a ticket? Right, and I'm like, <laughs> hey, and I'm like, hey, um, I'll give you some instruction in a second. Right now, I got to repair this robot that runs off of MIDI from this computer <laughs> over here by the drums. <laughs> Again, not a joke. Uh, that happened. We had we toured with a uh, a BWAC, the drummer of the David Crowder Band, built a robot that played. A lot of the things that you would traditionally put in tracks. I thought you were talking about a moving light. No, dude. I am serious. There was a robot that I would need help putting on top of a six-foot-tall road case every day that stood above the drummer um, in the band and played the parts that were in tracks. And it was actually mic'd, and Daniel made it sound incredible. No freaking way. I'll find some video footage I videos, it guys. It's incredible. The, the world needs the video That's of right. this.
2: Okay, so then Tomlin after that or Switchfoot?
1: Um, so at, immediately after that very first Crowder tour, they said, we loved having you out. We're going to continue to have you out. Any opportunity we can. However, there's not another one of those opportunities for like six months. Right. And I said, oh. Hashtag so here's, touring. Right. Here's the uh, here's what I'm learning very quickly. Let's say, you know, the wave is huge and you ride it and then it crashes and then you wait for the next one, right? So yep. um, in the meantime, I started tour managing a band called Green River Ordinance from Texas. Um, it was a, kind of a pop country Texas band. And we were in a van in a tiny little trailer. And we yeah. drove overnight. We drove through the night. We got yeah. up early. We were all over. We are playing everything from a 50-cap bar, not a club, not a venue, a bar, to opening for Goo Goo Dolls and American Idol winners at the time. And it was so fun. Yeah. And learned a lot. I took that job not really knowing what a tour manager did. I had seen it for one tour with Rob. And someone said, Can you tour manage this band? And I said, Absolutely, I can. And that kind of band, what it really means is, Can you drive us? You drive, you make sure that the um, green room has like at least a bottle of water in it. Yeah. And you sell some merchandise. Yeah. And you go tell the sound guy, like, that doesn't sound as good. Can you fix it? And you call the manager every day and say, What are we doing tomorrow? At the time, we didn't have all of the Google Sheets and Master Tour and everything like that, so we had an itinerary, and I was emailing. They were on a major label, so there was promo, there was radio, so I tour managed that until the next Crowder came around, but what happened in the meantime was we opened for, I mentioned the Goo Goo Dolls, but the second of three on that tour was Switchfoot, so we're the first of three Switchfoot plays, then Goo Goo Dolls play, and... We get to do some pretty iconic venues like the Greek Theater, Red Rocks, and some other amazing places. Um, obviously, a year into touring, getting to play venues like yeah. that, my mind is just exploding. Yeah, But you never know how things are gonna come back around. So continuing to fast forward a little bit, um, I get to go on tour with Need to Breathe because we also open shows for them. Um, Need to Breathe is opening for a girl named Taylor Swift So we did a six month.
2: You were on the stadium tour?
1: Yeah, 2011 Speak Now. Um, So she did. that was the first year she did stadiums. It was eight of them mixed in with arenas. Um, But she was outgrowing the arenas. So we did a lot of back-to-back arena shows, which was fun.
2: Did she Um, really pick them as the opener just because she liked them?
1: The first day of rehearsals, we get there. And there's like two days before the first actual concert. But everyone's at the venue. We finally get to load onto the stage sound check we're playing the first song which was washed by the water it was the first song they sound checked and everyone kind of looks down and she is sitting in the front row of an empty arena singing every word to the song wow it was the weirdest like she's still a myth and a legend at this point to us right and she is in the front row singing every word it was crazy she was a genuine fan of the band um, and was very welcoming and her crew we were obviously very understaffed in comparison, right? They've got a tech for everyone on stage. Yeah, you know They've got an RF tech walking around the room all the time. She's got four channels dedicated to her vocal and four to her guitar because there are no backup options in right. an arena show like that for her. Um, there were multiple RF techs because if something did happen RF-wise, that guy got fired and someone else came out, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but her crew was so kind to me. I was need to breathe stage manager and guitar tech. And there was only one of me for the five-person band. And, of course, they're trying to strike our gear in about a minute and a half. Yeah, And they're just so nice and like helpful, strict when they need to be about whether we're not getting the stage on time or whatever, but helping me with repairs because they knew I couldn't do it all in in the amount of time I had. And that really stuck with me because the position they were in didn't require them to give any care to the opening band. But instead they multiple people on their crew looked after me and helped ultimately help need to breathe show to be better. Yeah. And why do they care? They they don't care about that, but no. they were, that just to me goes to show like you don't have, just cause you're elevated to a position of leadership, authority, power, whatever. You don't have to stay in that lane. Like you can go out of your way to help somebody else. Cause you don't know
0: yeah. what it'll mean to them. That's so good. And from their perspective, it helped everybody's experience of Taylor's show be better because Absolutely. if they're getting warmed up right, there's more energy, there's more, you know, there's less fatigue, it's it's a better experience for everybody for the whole night. Mm-hmm. So she and they understood that, hey, this opening role is not just a time filler, right? It's actually really important for the whole
1: experience. Exactly. And so to, you know, that tour wraps I get to be on the David Crowder band's farewell tour, which was the fall of 2011. Um, and then our last event that we're gonna do as the David Crowder band is Passion. Right before that, we go to Winter Extreme in Gatlinburg Conferences. And we, our bus is pulling in to the loading dock. And I see these guys that look moderately familiar and it's Switchfoot. And they're playing Winter Extreme as well. Yeah. Crowder, every night, Crowder is gonna play right before their like late night concert. And they knew that the David Crowder band was rapping. I didn't really have any plans as a, I think I was 25 at the time. Uh, hadn't thought that far ahead because we weren't done with the shows yet. Yeah. And lo and behold, like six hours after we arrived at that conference center, I've got a job with Switchfoot starting in February because they knew they were needing to transition their current backline tech out of his role. They had a big tour coming up in the spring. Um, and I was just, I just, rolled in on a bus with somebody else at the right time. So it's, it's crazy. Like we didn't have to sit down and talk about, okay, so tell me kind of your style of how you do things. And yeah, no, we had, you'd been interviewing for four years. We had toured together. Yeah. With the Goo Goo Dolls, you know, before. And again, you never know how one seemingly meaningless connection. I mean, I was, I was a huge Switchfoot fan. So getting to tour with them the first time was as with a different band was, I was watching every minute of their set, of course. Right. Right. But to them, you know, what an opportunity, like, wow, we can bring a guy into our team that we know we will get along with. We know we'll like, we think he's a hard worker based on what we saw, you know, a little while ago. And to this day, a lot of people in that organization are still extremely close friends of mine. I still work with a lot of them um, in different capacities and and that did lead to a very long-term relationship, and a relationship where I grew from a backline tech to a true stage manager to a monitor engineer. Mm. I would use the term engineer a little loosely. I had some great people build some awesome files that the band yeah. was really happy with, and I babysat them. Yeah, but um, to yeah, then tour managing them. Probably one of the coolest things I've ever gotten to do was tour manage Switchfoot while we opened for the band Bon Jovi in Europe for three weeks. So that was wild. And none of that would have happened (laughs) if I didn't tour manage a band in a van in 2010.
2: No, if you had not had answer the phone call in Waco to go help load the church
0: in.
1: Yep. Exactly.
0: Yeah, there's so many lessons here for people who are younger and just starting out. It's like, because for so much of the people who are in this industry and so much of the industry itself, there really isn't a clear path, right? It's like... There's not a straight line for anything in this industry. I have, It's funny, in my local church, there's a kid who's graduating high school this year, and he's trying to decide if he wants to go to Belmont or MTSU. And it's like, well, I'm so stressed out, because if I make the wrong choice, it's going to be whatever, whatever. And I'm like, bro, if you're a hard worker who is going to learn a lot and can be paying attention, and learn along the way, either of those choices or neither of those choices can get you a long way in this industry, because it's really not about uh, you know, a straight line path toward this eventual result. It's Absolutely. more about who you are rather than what you know right now.
1: Yeah. Everybody says, oh, well, this wasn't my plan, but here's where I ended up. And I think that's maybe there's more true examples, but I feel like my career has been one of those very pristine examples of i just walked where i thought the path was leading and paid attention to what was around me because again lo and behold a band i started tuning guitars for in 2012 i was tour managing in a soccer stadium in front of 90,000 people in vienna austria in 2019 that doesn't make any sense
2: not really (laughs) no okay so there's more to this story but we don't we don't have three hours. So you end up tour managing Tomlin.
1: Right, yeah. Filled in as a guitar tech for a tour. Um, our good friend Clay uh, took a gig with, I think he was in a band called The Beatles. Ringo Starr? Yeah, was he in some, that?
0: someone you may have heard of. Yeah. yeah so and, and at the time, any time you have a chance to work for a Beatle, you do it. The
1: answer is- You drop whatever you have to Absolutely, yeah. yes. Right. And luckily for me, I had a beard. I wore a hat. I have glasses. All those things are still true today. But at the time, Clay and I kind of looked like twins. And so there was a bit of a running joke that if Clay can't be there, we just have to find someone that looks like Clay. And that was me. (laughs) So I filled in as a guitar tech. And then um, about a year and a half after I filled in, Jeff was mixing the whole time. um, Chris called and said, hey, I'm going to make a change at, at tour manager. Is that something you'd be interested in? And I I definitely thought about it for a long time because it was, I was still on the path of kind of working on the stage, whether it was monitors or guitars. Um, And it just made a lot of sense talking with with Clay and with a lot of other guys that are still in the band, Daniel and and Gilder and other folks that were around. And I'm sure I talked to Jeff about it at the time. And it was, I mean, an amazing five years of, of tour managing for Chris and... A lot of crazy experiences um, and a lot of amazing relationships and memories. And, um, yeah, still some very, very close friends uh, today as, as the guys in that camp. And I'm excited to see them play tonight Yeah, in Knoxville. So it should be a fun time.
0: It's going to be a great night. So how did all that lead to
1: IPS? Well, I think it was Switchfoot um, carries they're a cool band. I, I guess I can objectively say that. Yeah. Most people think they're a cool band. And that carries a little weight in a city like Nashville. I moved to Nashville by the way in the background of all of that, I moved to Nashville in the end of 2011, so I've been there yeah. about 11 years. And that gig in Nashville causes people to go, "Oh, you worked for Switchfoot." I probably know someone that worked for them and they have good people around them and then I started working for Tomlin. And that also kind of carries some weight. Chris had just moved to Nashville right when I started with him. Yeah, His band had just moved up. And I would, because of both of those things, I would get people come coming to me and asking, I've got a little event um, in a couple of weeks. We need some speakers. Or, hey, I've, I've got a friend that's about to go out on tour and we need some video content made. Or we need some lights. Who, who do I go to for that? Like a lot of people that aren't actively touring don't know where those relationships are. Again, this is on the production side, yeah, on the touring side. So I would get all those requests and I would figure out where to send them because I wasn't gonna obviously provide any gear at that time. And that led to just three or four years of essentially being an account manager, uh, an unofficial account manager in the background of what I was doing as I was touring full time. And right before the pandemic, I promise I didn't have any advance notice, but in August of 2019, I, um, you know, had one child at the time, we were wanting another child. And I thought this is probably the window for life to slow down a bit and settle to something where I'm not traveling quite so much. And again, I promise I didn't have any advance notice, there would be no shows for a year. (laughs) But um, yeah, started working um, with the company that would eventually become IPS in August of 2019. We made that official transition, big launch, in February of 2020. Yep. Just and in time. Just in time for every piece of equipment we had on the road to come back in about a three day window. Yep. And we were a very small company at the time. Again, we were kind of rebranding, launching. Um, and it was just a great time to rebrand all the equipment and rebarcode everything and reorganize the warehouse. And obviously, no one wanted that to be the case. But the silver lining was, we never would have gotten that opportunity to kind of reset, have a staff that made it through all that together, a very small staff that went from six or eight people at the time to now almost 30. Um, and and I started as a general manager kind of during that time, because it didn't yeah. really matter what the title was, to be honest with you. Right. Um, but and then now uh, as the director of sales on the production side um, of IPS, which essentially means I'm managing our sales team um, that manages all of our accounts on the touring side. We also have an integration division. Um, and Michael Casey, who some of our listeners probably know. Yeah, Michael just joined our team um, in October. So he is my counterpart as the director of sales on the integration side. Yeah. So our company is unique, I think, because I feel as though we are pretty level. The seesaw doesn't tip too hard one way or the other. Um, we're not an integration company that has a couple pieces of gear to rent out, and we're not a nationwide touring company with 10 locations that installs a PA once a year. Yeah, we're a pretty even balance between production rentals and integration and yeah. new sales. So it's fun because you get to see the other side of things quite a bit, and our team helps each other out all the time. We're one. We're under one roof, one name, um, and. It's been really fun, and I'm super excited for the future. We've got an exciting 2023 ahead with, on the production side with gear acquisitions and new clients and things I can't wait to tell everybody about. That's cool. That's cool.
2: Well, I need to know one thing before we wrap this. Okay. What is the key to making touring Jeff Sandstrom a happy employee? <laughs> As tour manager of said Jeff Sandstrom, what is the one thing you knew that if if Jeff has this – Gear, food, activity—like he's gonna be, he's good.
1: Well, I've never wanted to get too good at golf to where I could challenge him because <laughs> that would kind of ruin his afternoon. If you know, with Tom and we'd do a 8 a.m. sound check for a festival, and we would not need to be back to the stage till 10:30 p.m. Right? Yeah. So Jeff and I got a chance to play some golf together over the years, and. Again, just wanted to keep his spirits up. Yeah, that's why I was shooting like a ninety four most days. Yeah, um, and letting him stay in the seventies. But uh, yeah, no, I you know what's funny is quickly I do remember the first time I I guess probably officially met Jeff is when I was with Crowder and our tour manager Rob that we already mentioned was out of town for uh, his wife was having a baby, so I was the only crew guy on site at that time for Crowder. We were doing a passion event in Fort Worth, Texas, and Rob texted me and said, "Hey." Just go check in with Jeff, make sure he's good and everything will be fine. So I, 23 year old, uh, you know, guitar tech really, and that's even probably too generous of a title, come running back to front of house. And I'm like, hey, Jeff, um, how's, how's it going up here? You have everything you need? And with hands on the faders, like listening to sound check, he kind of just turns his head and goes, I got it. And goes back <laughs> And goes back to mixing. <laughs> Oh, and, and, I was, and I was like, so excited. I was like, text Rob back, like, he's got it. We're good.
0: <laughs> but no- That's a great story. It's funny because back then, not every one of the passion artists had their own right. touring front of house guy. So at a passion event, typically I would end up mixing exactly. all the bands. Yeah. And I always loved mixing for Crowder because the content was so interesting. Right? The whether it was in the tracks or the songs themselves or yeah. whatever, back in those days, it was not just sort of what you would consider straight ahead worship tunes. Right. So it was so much fun. And all the guys, of course, were awesome. So
1: I and- knew we had crossed paths before that, but I I think that was probably the first time I ever spoke directly to you with no one else around.
0: That's fun. And I,
1: I remember texting Rob back, like, he's got it. We're good. <laughs> and, uh, no, I mean, honestly, I've, I've heard a lot of people mix a lot of different artists specifically. I've heard a lot of people mix Chris. And I think, you know, I think your talent speaks for itself. Everyone knows you're a great engineer and it was so fun, um, for so many years getting to do that alongside you. Well, thanks. And I would, I would, uh, sl- casually walk back to front of house and kind of look around and nod and kind of make sure everybody give everyone a thumbs up and say, you got everything you need. Um, Mainly, though, they were probably concerned with what I was going to order for after show food, right? If that Pretty was much, going to be yeah. cold by the time they got done, or yep. um, if it was going to be tasty. But yeah, it was so fun um, traveling together, and that and that's part of what I miss is the camaraderie. I don't miss walking through the venue at seven a.m. looking to see which restrooms available, right? But I do miss uh, you know those continual friendships and and growing those relationships together over a common bond, which is music, and then obviously with an artist like Chris. The, the message that's behind it. What I
0: remember specifically are moments like, you know, in the afternoon, after sound check, before dinner, before doors, there's that lull. The lull. And
1: it's at four o'clock today, by the way.
0: Yeah. But in the production office, like there was always a moment or two, maybe not every day, but at least a couple times a week, where, you know, you'd walk by the production office and there's Steven. And probably Clay and probably one of the band guys and maybe one of the other kind of tour staff just sitting there having a cup of coffee and it's in those moments where the just the conversation or the joking or the whatever, it's like those moments are so rich. And you know, we've talked to guys all the time about how that yeah. kind of tour bus moment, the relational side, the the stuff where those those relational chips get banked. Yeah, those moments are to be treasured because then, when the pressure's on, and when you have a hard load in, or you have a whatever, or there's a late load out, and the food's cold, or whatever, it's not. I'm not taking it personally against Stephen or whoever, because the relation is established. The relationship is established in those kind of yeah, you know, lull moments. So, I think if it, if the average church team could learn something from a touring team. It would be that it's where are those moments happening because the depth and the richness of that is so important. Well said. Well, you got to get to sound check. I do. I've got an hour and fifteen minutes to eat lunch and be at sound check. All right. Well, Stephen, thank you for your partnership with us as IPS, but more importantly, thank you for your friendship as Stephen Samuels. Because I think you know that's that's how the professional relationship is formed and gets better is because of friendship in the first place so right
1: i I think that doesn't stop in the worship space or the church space or the accounting space or the developer space right you know you have to enjoy who you're around and pour into those relationships and you'll see it um come back on the flip side it's it's been really fun thanks for having me yeah awesome
0: well well don't suck
2: tonight lee (laughs) hey a hometown show i actually feel a lot of pressure that this needs to be awesome
0: are you nervous uh i'm not nervous i'm excited yeah it's gonna be great yeah i can't wait to hear it let's do it okay